Welcome to the Revolution and Ideology podcast and our Myth is America series in which we're trying to deconstruct the traditional historical narrative of the United States. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the period of the drafting of the Constitution. Uh, so we're going to go over the Constitutional Convention and uh, some other events during this period. I don't think we can stress enough the importance of this event and this time in the myth of the origin of the country. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're going to be doing on this episode. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Here we go. So we're going to pick up right where we uh, where we left off in some prior episodes after Shay's Rebellion. Um, go back, check that episode. We also had one on Abigail Adams that uh, precedes this one. But regardless, we're going to pick up in that that uh, that era um, and how uh, basically the framers of the United States. And again, it's it's a minority of human beings that we are going to to again we're going to pick on these guys, um, but a minority of people that will be making the decisions for uh, millions around them at the time, and then of course uh, uh, millions that will follow them. Um, and that's one of the debates we'll be getting into uh, again, not just in this episode, but also in future episodes. The the power and the gravity of the Constitution and the debate of whether it should be considered valid for all of us or not. Anyway. To do that well, we need to set a historical context. So I'm going to go back in time just a little bit and talk about um, how the, uh, the, the Confederacy the, basically governed itself before they decided on the United States Constitution. So one of the things that, that took place uh, upon officially declaring independence from England all the way back in the 1770s, and we, we talked about that already in prior episodes, was they needed to find a way to kind of work together um, these various states. And they came up with the Articles of Confederation, and there had already been like prior discussion about these. I mean, we could argue all the way back to the Albany Plan of Union in 1754. There were already things in place for uh, colonies at the time to begin to try and work together uh, for some sort of common cause. Um, but the Articles of Confederation mainly come from the Second Continental Congress, which do seek to forge some unity. Basically, I'm not going to go through each of the articles. We like to use primary sources, but in this case, I just don't know that they're impactful enough for us to, to really go through them specifically. So I'm basically going to paraphrase these articles of confederation. They basically form a very loose confederacy of relatively sovereign states that work together in a very limited capacity. And the main things that they emphasize are that these states should work together uh, in declaring both war and peace um, other foreign relations, other types of foreign relations. They sought to regulate interstate trade, and they basically created a postal service. Um, again, they're very basic. It is a loose confederacy. Everything of major consequence to people's individual lives and governance, that was to be handled at state or colony levels. So again, for those people that like to beat the state's rights drum, they probably could look at the Articles of Confederation, although I do believe they're beating the state's rights drums for very disingenuous reasons, but, but that would be something they could look at would be the Articles of Confederation in that regard. One of the bigger issues that the Articles did not address that immediately became a problem both like during the war and immediately after the War for Independence was like, what's going to go on with this Western territory? I mean, the war, as we've already discussed in prior episodes, kind of springs forth from like this competition for the Ohio Valley. In fact, the French and Indian War is what leads to the American War for Independence because it's that taxation and recompense that the British were seeking that leads to, of course, um, um, the taxation and, and that debate. But now that all that is said and done and some of the dust is settled, some of the dust is settled, they're going to now try and figure out, well, what's going to happen with this land? And this basic agreement dating back to November of 1777 was actually never fully ratified. 
Um, and it required – one of the things that they said it required at the time was unanimous adopt, adoption, which took about four years. It merely legitimized what the leadership was doing. How this pertains to the West is, well, land. Are these new states, newly independent states, I should say, going to be able to acquire that land or are they going to develop new states? That was also a debate and the articles, the way they were structured um, and how representation was going to be implemented was reliant sometimes on territory and population. And so that's why this was such a, such a great debate. Some states are immediately going to grow and become more influential in this new federal confederacy, and others, like a, a Rhode Island, are going to be stuck remaining small and unimpactful. So that's one of the things that they were trying to debate. Any change to those articles required either a seven-state ratification for, like, smaller choices or a nine-state ratification for something like declaring war. Um, again, nine out of 13. One of the keys here is that it never granted the federal government, or it's not, again, it's, it's, it's very loose. I don't even know that I call it like a governing, it's, it's, it's a loose confederacy, but it never granted what we would call the Fed the power to tax. And that's going to be wildly important. It was up, left up to the states or the local municipalities to tax, and it will be this taxation question that will play a pretty big role in the framing of its replacement, the United States Constitution. Um, and here's the thing. Um, basically the idea behind running this very small, unintrusive federal government is it required seven states, uh, attendance for even the Congress to qualify as actually meeting. One of the problems with that is that it very rarely took place. One, because it, it's framed during a time of war, so people are clearly distracted with other things that are going on. But two, um, meeting in the 1700s was a pain in the ass. You can just hop on a, on a plane or even jump in a car and, and get somewhere relatively quickly. And if you are one of these elitists that's actually not even engaging in the combat portion of the war, um, you're more focused on your own personal interests. So you don't care about meeting up in, uh, all the time and meeting up in Philadelphia or Boston or wherever they decide to meet at any given moment. Uh, so it wasn't really... A lot of people just didn't attend. They were very focused on their local politics. People were active in their local politics, but not this whole federal entity. This idea that the United States, immediately upon Declaration of Independence, there was this like magical ethos where, yeah, go America, we're all American. That is an absolute just fabrication, a bold-faced lie told by like history teachers and textbooks uh, across the country. People were very proud of their independence from England. Um, other people were not, but we've already talked about loyalists and so on and so forth. But the people that were, they were more proud of this idea of being an independent Virginian or Bostonian than they were of being an American. Um, that American, that federal or nationalist identity had to be manufactured. We'll be talking about how it is in this class or in this, this podcast. In fact, the podcast itself is kind of an explanation um, where we deconstruct the ethically constitutive story, the celebrated narrative of the United States that is used as propaganda to get willing subscribers. That's why we're doing this podcast uh, to begin with. But back to the time period, people were not super passionate about this federal entity. As far as governance was concerned, I mentioned the states are basically taking care of themselves. By May of 1776, 10 of the 13 states had constitutions, and Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut had actually updated their colonial charters. All of these were based on some sort of or some form of republicanism. When I say that, I'm not talking about the modern political party, party by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just basically talking about this idea of a representative republic. 
style of governance, not, and I must stress this, I must stress this, Nick will talk more about this in a little bit, not democracy. One of the biggest misnomers that is like, it might be the most perpetuated in the United States today, and even around the world when people talk about the United States, they call it a democracy. I must stress, it is absolutely 100% not a democracy. And I'm not saying that's a bad or good thing our listeners can decide, but we're going to read directly from one of the framers of the Constitution, James Madison, and he will basically explain why it is not a democracy, why he did not create a democracy, why he does not want to create a democracy. Democracy insinuates the rule of the people where every decision, everything is voted upon. That's not the case. We, in theory, get to do some of that by having sort of a say-so in who we elect to represent us, and we'll go through the Constitution itself, and that's why I say sort of a say-so. There are barriers there, like electoral colleges, that sometimes check our, our decisions, but regardless, it is not a, it's, it's not a democracy. It's, it, it doesn't – I mean there are democratic processes – and at a local level, we could argue some of that's democratic, uh, city councils and even sometimes voting for mayors and stuff. That's a little bit more democratic, but not at the federal level. So um, anyway, the reason I mention this is this idea of republicanism is inspired from a couple of different places. Most importantly, both the written and unwritten parts of the English Constitution. Yes, the English Constitution does not have some sort of formal final draft that you can like Google and go through. It's basically a series of of traditions and statutes and mandates dating all the way back to the 1215 Magna Carta. Um, but yes, the English Constitution is one of the major inspirations, as is the 1688 English Bill of Rights. Um, these things are wildly impactful on the framing of these state constitutions, and I mention that because one of the things I think a lot of people are taught about the United States is it somehow invented the idea of democratic values or representative uh, Republican values or a Bill of Rights or freedom or whatever. Whatever we're told is, again, another bold-faced, just absolute lie. They're inspired. Or even like checks and balances. Yeah, and like are you, yeah. we've already talked about that in that Thomas Paine mm -hmm. episode. But yes, like this whole idea that we invented this way of governance is – the irony here is we borrowed like the mass, vast majority of it from the English who were the tyrants, right? They were the tyranny. They were awful. And yet we jack most of their governing ideas, which shows that the war itself wasn't so revolutionary. But that's for another episode. Um, anyway, like that's one major inspiration. There is also inspiration from some of the better read architects of the nation dating back to, um, Greek, de uh, Greek democratic values or Roman republicanism. There's clear inspiration is there, there as well. And one of the most overlooked and one of my favorite to discuss, cause this is arguably one of my favorite people that have ever existed to this day, the Iroquois League of, uh, League of Peace and Power or the Iroquois Confederacy as it eventually transitioned into being was a, uh, uh, six nations, first nations. Seneca, Onondaga, Oneida, Cayuga, Tuscarora, and Mohawk. And basically, they also had an unwritten form of representative democracy, um, which I won't go into the trouble of, of explaining right here. Maybe we'll do an episode of that in the future. Or uh, you can check out one of our other videos on this channel called Natural Democracy, where I basically go through the processes of what the Iroquois League of Peace and Power had in place for decision making and quote-unquote governance. They didn't have like an, a, a government, that, a governing body that was like, you know, oppressive or anything along those lines. But that's how that works. Anyway, we see this inspiration coming from multiple places. Um, one of the things we have to uh, keep in mind is that six of these state constitutions contained a specific bill of rights. Um, and that bill of rights was not for everybody, as we know. Um, that was for usually uh, men. 
and sometimes men of a certain uh, property-owning status, and sometimes men of a certain religious persuasion, and definitely all men of a certain racial demographic. So it was a very limited Bill of Rights. I mean, again, we can pat ourselves on the back like, oh my God, these states had like these Bills of Rights and we invented freedom. But in reality... I don't know what, like, accent that was, but I feel like you should do the whole episode in that. I can't do it. There's no way. Like, dude, I'd probably, like, my my throat would get all sore and start coughing and something. Or maybe I'd end up finding myself in, like, a pair of, like, Levi's and cowboy boots or some shit. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway. I have Levi's on right now. I don't know. I'd be fine. I'd have a Cummins diesel outside, like, waiting for me. Like, anyway, back to the story. Um... I don't even remember what I was talking about at this point. Okay, so six of the constitutions did contain a Bill of Rights, but those Bills of Rights actually were not for all of the people. They were for a very distinct minority, or as James Madison will call them when we get to him, a faction. Um, And that's – it's very important for us to understand that that means at the state level – again, I'm focusing on the state level first – because the state had the power to tax, and as we discussed in the Shays' Rebellion episode, oh, tax they did. They taxed their brains out much more than the British ever did. But what I'm saying here is if it is only a minority of people in these states that were represented, but everybody is facing the tax, that very well could also be a model for taxation without representation. Oh, the great irony. The great, great irony. What do you think of that? How I mean, the, just the bold-faced hypocrisy here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just funny how quickly they go straight into the behaviors that they fought the war against. I mean, They're hypocrites. Yeah. Why are they hypocrites? What's wrong with their little brains? I, I don't even know. Don't okay, even know. here's the question, actually. I mean, it's let self-interest. Me be, That's what it is. Let me be serious about it. Is it hypocrisy? Is it cognitive dissonance? I mean, is it just ethical bankruptcy? Like, what? what's... Again, I really do want to, like, kind of try and get in that mindset, especially Sam Adams, who we already picked on in the Shays episode, how he's like, oh, man, he's so revolutionary, and I'm going to get rid of the British, and then the minute he's in power in Boston, he's like, anyone that challenges us must die. Like, are you kidding me, guy? I mean, I think it just definitely exposes the fact that the war wasn't about taxation in the first place. That's not what it was about. It was about... The fact that they didn't want to be taxed by someone else, but they have no problem taxing someone else themselves. They want to be in charge. I mean, that's what it, that's what it boils down to. Um, it's self-interest. Let's put a lipstick on this pig for just a second and look for a little bit of a silver lining here, at least in some of the states. Um, the reason I the, the one the one thing I want to point out is that some of the states actually um, did make some changes. And I'll give them credit. They were forced to based on some petitions and things that we had read in prior episodes, but. Um, in fact, we'll start with them. We had an entire episode, I think it's uh, Slave Trade Part 2 or whatever, where we went through how in Massachusetts, slaves sued for their own freedom in court um, in Massachusetts, and based on the language specifically of all men, quote-unquote, in numerous uh, foundational documents, and they actually, many of them were eventually able to win and set a legal precedent to eventually abolish slavery in Massachusetts. The reason I'm looking at the slave-based question is because we're seeing how at the state level some of these processes were being taken care of. Um, and trying to give a little bit of credit to these states that were willing to at least take what took, take the war for independence and try and move a little bit forward in some regards. And slavery is a pretty big topic. So I feel like that's a pretty good one to, to focus on. 
Pennsylvania also passed gradual emancipation laws of 1780s, where all children born after March 1st, 1780 would be free when they turned 21. And then most of them actually, most slaves in Pennsylvania uh, just eventually ended up running away, and there was very minimal enforcement. Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey also all added gradual emancipation laws between 1784 and 1804. 1804, and then Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia authorized individual acts of manumission. Um, the big winner here, though, is Vermont, who from its uh, from independence on in its constitution had abolished slavery, um, which is interesting. Again, these are just a little bit of legal notes for us to kind of carry forward. Obviously, we know what's going on in the dirty South. Nada. They're not giving up their slaves. It is the foundation of their economy. They are awful. And and again, that is not hyperbole, and I don't care what anyone says about tradition and while they're wearing the con- Confederate flag and whatever, smoking their unfiltered camels or whatever they're doing down there. You're awful. You own human beings. You want to get back to that. You're awful. Um... Or the values that were attached to that. I don't think any are so bold as to say they'd want to get back. Well, maybe. I don't know. I'm sure they exist. I'm sure there's probably a few that do exist, but regardless. Or the values that were attached to it. You're awful. Now, I'm not saying everybody in the South is awful. But those people that are really into the whole, like, our tradition as being this Southern slave holding, like, whatever. Those people. Yeah. Been to the South numerous times. Wonderful place. Anyway... Issues of confederation, especially the post-war. There was financial chaos due to the debt from the war. Holy shit, the British were right. War does cost a lot of money, and we're going to have to make that money up. Weird. It's expensive. Weird. Oh, my God. And our worthless paper currency that we just basically just made out of thin air is worth nothing. Bear in mind, one of the things we learned in Shays' Rebellion is that the elite were not just operating in this worthless paper money that they decided to manufacture. They also had the hard currency and land holdings— while giving the regular folk and their veterans, as we learned with Shays, the paper money that was worth nothing. Many institutions refused to accept the currency that they issued or or endorsed during the war. The reason that's important is because, again, like what we're saying here is here's this thing to make you feel important, to pay you so that you'll do things for us. But then when the war's over and it's time for you to pay off your debts or purchase things, we won't accept this form of currency that we gave you. We want precious metals or we want land. And again, Nick went into much greater detail with a specific example of how that worked in Western Massachusetts with Daniel Shays and Luke Day and the whole gang. This also led to the proliferation of debtors' prisons throughout the United States. Merely being in debt would lead to prison sentences. Now, not prison sentences to the length and terms that we see in today's, uh, uh, basically, this this police state, this... uh, I can't even think of the term right now, the uh, prison industrial complex, but still prison terms. Um, and that's important because, again, what we're seeing here is institutionalization of socioeconomic uh, stratification. We're seeing it. If you're in prison, you can never catch up. And attached to that prison are fees, court fees, and sometimes needing representation and paying attorneys and so on and so forth, which continues to put these individuals behind the eight ball to where they can never actively compete with their elite, quote-unquote, oppressors in the market, which is, again, one of the great lies of the free market that we all believe in. But Nick will be doing an episode on that in, in the future because uh, that's his wheelhouse. Okay. Yeah, I think that it also sort of illuminates the reason why the focus of Shea's rebellion in the beginning were the courthouses, where they were shutting down uh-huh. the debt proceedings. Inflation was rampant. By the 1780s, it took about $146 of this monopoly money, 
um, this continental currency to buy about a dollar's worth of goods in 1775 in some areas. So in about five years, you go up. I don't even know what the percentage on that is. We need a math whiz in here. But basically, yeah, you're, you're, you're paying 146 times the price of basic goods. People just could not afford that. Um, there's also aggressive settling of the West taking place, especially in New York, after Sullivan's ethnic cleansing of the Iroquois League of Peace and Power, a great irony, both an inspiration for the framing of what the government would be, but also in the way of, quote-unquote, progress. So they must be ethnically cleansed. We already went over that, George Washington's orders. I think that was two or three episodes ago now at this point, but we went through his orders to, again, commit genocide against these First Nations. A treaty was set up called the Treaty of Fort Stanwix, which settled a land dispute between New York and Massachusetts while closing the Canadian border and forcing the Iroquois, or better known as the, at least in their own terms, Adonisani, to recognize U.S. control and basically claiming them, and this is the language they used, as a subdued people. Um, The Seneca in particular, for example, were forced to sign over the Ohio Valley River at gunpoint with hostages and New York immediately goes off treaty, the Treaty of Fort Stanwix, and starts selling off Iroquois land to speculators and investors. And this leads to the development of these two trappings of the the war for independence in the French and Indian War, the Ohio River, and then, of course, like Western New York. Thomas Jefferson comes along, and the reason we're going through some of this right now is because of that Western issue that we're that, that's going to plague the Articles Confederation. Jefferson comes along and suggests turning all of this this new Western land into ten zones that can become states not property of existing ones, to basically cool the tensions. Again, this is about how much representation each of these states will get under the Articles of Confederation. And one thing he thinks will basically settle the debate is, you old states, you don't get any new shit. We're going to make new states. And that will uh, spread power a little bit more evenly. Um, he also, and, and to his credit, even though, uh, in other episodes I've really beat him up and I will continue to beat him up actually, but the one thing he does say is that these new states should be free states rather than slave states. Again, this man never frees his own slaves, but I, I, he's just such a weird character. Why is he such a weird guy? Like some of his things are like, man, like, okay, I get you, dude. But then I'm like, oh, you also like raped your slaves. Like what, like How? This guy, he's frustrating. He's more frustrating than the others because there's parts of him that you really want to like. And then there's other parts of him that you're like, God, I just can't let go of these moral problems. Yeah, most of them are super easy. Just they're straight assholes. But yeah, he's one of the conundrums. He's just so frustrating. Um, Okay, anyway. They're either assholes or they're like like Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine, the one we like. He has a little bit of controversy later on, but yeah. yeah. Um, between 1784 and 85, the Northwest Ordinance debated the slavery issue, and eventually it was decided that this new territory will actually not be 10, ten zones, but about three to five states, and the land would be auctioned off. The minimum purchase was 640 acres. The only reason I'm focusing on this, because it's going to come full circle at the end of this episode when we talk about the economic foundation of the United States, is if you are only allowing minimum purchases in this new open Western land of these representatives of the state of 640 acres, the only people investing are rich. So what we're doing is the same thing when we see with the foundation of the country. It is it is an economic it is economic un, uneconomically, excuse my excuse me, unequal from the get-go. Mm-hmm. 
that the first people that get an opportunity to invest in this new land and this new territory and parcel it off and sell it to the poor with very expensive mortgages and so on and so forth are going to be the rich. They're the first ones that get their hands on this new land because a regular Joe, a yeoman farmer or a poor immigrant that's just came in through, the, you know, whatever, through New York City or through Philadelphia can't afford 640 acres. Right. Why would you make that the minimum? Why can't that guy just go buy his one acre? Why does it have to go through a land speculator and then a banker? And like basically because they're all just trimming off their fat profits mm-hmm. while taking advantage Which, I mean, of like these The great obvious irony is that they didn't own the land in the first place. Right. It's, it's, it's stolen land. It is literally stolen land. You are living on stolen land. Anyway, uh, 1787 also dictated that statehood would be set, um, and the population needed to be 5,000 to have representation in any of these new states and 60,000 to actually become a state, which would remain part of the process moving forward as the United States spreads west, and we'll talk about that, obviously, throughout this, this entire uh, series. All this eventually boils over, though, all of the problems I talked about, from, like, debates on who should be free and who should be a slave to what's taking place with this recently um, opened up uh, Native American land after they stole it from the indigenous people uh, to how are we going to implement taxes to how should land be distributed and how what this means to representation under the Articles of Confederation, all of that. Like, that's why I did all that. Boils over in 1786 through 87 with Shays' Rebellion. We did an entire episode on it. It's awesome. Check it out. Uh, I'm not going to repeat any of that because whatever. We've already done it. One of the things that takes place, though, after Shays' Rebellion is the debate that there is going to be a need for larger federal presence, a bigger federal entity. And that's where the idea behind the United States Constitution really starts to gain traction. In May of 1787, 55 representatives met up to basically only revise the Articles of Confederation. They weren't necessarily looking to create a new document. They were merely hoping to enhance or bolster the power of the one they were already op- or the one they were already operating operating under. Some of the old guard are there, like at this new meeting in 1787, an old guard, you know what I mean, like the older generation of quote-unquote um, movers and shakers, but many of the younger elites are now basically calling the shots, and uh, these young elitists, uh, the James Madisons, the John Jays, and the Alexander Hamiltons, which again, if you've seen the musical, maybe he didn't start that way, but he very quickly becomes an elitist, uh, and, and God, that musical drives me up the wall. How did we celebrate this guy? With hip-hop of all things. Like, you're... What? Yeah, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, like, are you kidding me? You're going to co-opt... Oh, my God. Woo! You're going to co-opt an art form that is meant to challenge systems of power to celebrate a man that developed systems of power, had very strong feelings that abolition wasn't good. Like, God. God! Anyway, all right, moving forward. Back to the story. These elitists were the ones that are starting to call the shots at this meeting in May of 1787. The main plans that end up being, like, debated, although Hamilton has his own cute little plan on the side. We're not going to go over it. It's not super influential. But the main plans that end up being debated to revise these articles are called the Virginia Plan and the New Jersey Plan. They're inspired by the state constitutions that they're drawn from, obviously in Virginia and New Jersey. And they're drawn up in secrecy over over the coming months after 1787. To break down these plans super simply, the Virginia plan uh, promised a three-section government with an executive branch, a bicameral legislative branch, and a judicial uh, branch. Sounds pretty familiar. Um, and it ends up being most of what becomes adopted by the uh, new nation state. But 
there are some sp- slight differences. For example, the legislative branch would have representation in both houses based on population. We know that's not eventually what was decided upon, but that's one of the differences. Both the House of Representatives and the Senate would have been based on population. And then federal military authority would be used to control and enforce the law on all new states. This is my boy James Madison right off the bat. This guy that we celebrate basically in crafting this – Saying all states that aren't on board with the Virginia plan, because again, we know like not all states are going to be super into this constitution thing. They're going to want to do their own thing that they would then be basically invaded and by the new, by the new United States military and forced to comply. You want to talk about tyranny? You want to talk about tyranny? That's tyranny. That was this dude's plan. This guy. The New Jersey plan uh, was pretty similar, but it operated operated in some interesting things. Operated or operated differed. God, I can't even think this morning. Differed in some different ways. It offered a single legislative house with one vote per state, so it doesn't matter representatives, senators, whatever. It's just one thing, and each state gets one vote, rather than this complex two senators versus X amount of representatives, depending on what state you're in. Right? Just one state, one vote. And a three-headed executive branch. What do you think of a three-headed executive? Three presidents. Yeah, it's kind of funny because there's actually a lot of conversation now. Uh, I don't know about a lot, but I've heard it frequently of people talking about that of or like having like a five-member uh, executive branch. It's kind of interesting. I don't know. I think I'm sure that there is some like political science out, scientists out there that would correct me, but I don't really see a downside to it. It seems like. I see it from both sides, like the president doesn't actually have a lot of power, but it would seem that if that power is put into the hands of three or five people or whatever, I don't really see a problem with it other than bureaucracy and times it would take to make decisions. But Yeah, I mean, France dabbled with the five-man directory mm-hmm. for a little bit and yeah, it didn't true. last. Um, anyway. I mean, the president's just a figurehead anyways, let's be honest. So having one of those is easier to manage than having five. Well, so, so we're actually going to get into that debate because some will argue that even though like there are checks and balances, quote unquote, in the system, that the executive branch is the most powerful branch and is a pathway to tyranny. And from the very – we'll do this in a future episode. From the very first executive on, every executive has basically expanded executive power over the other two. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of interesting. Now, it's not a king. It's not a dictator. They can't right. do anything they want, but they do tend to have more gravity than the other two branches, which is not the way it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And that started with the first president, who, again, we'll pick on in a future episode uh, more. We already have, but when he's actually president, we'll also pick him apart because uh, he needs it. All right. Anyway, they end up compromising on the Virginia plan, and that's basically what becomes the Constitution. Um Interesting side note for uh, historians that are interested in, again, social history. This is also when the three-fifths compromise um, comes about, uh, which shows how disgusting the foundation of the United States really is. And and that, again, is not me being hyperbolic. I do firmly feel that way. Like, again, when you're debating, when you as white, elite, wealthy men are in a room somewhere debating whether another human being is a whole person or merely three-fifths of a person, not because you're looking to give that individual right. Rights, but because you're debating how much that state should have representation in the fucking government, you're a gross, disgusting, and despicable human being. I mean, yeah, it's the, the completely ridiculous that the delegates from the southern states 
now they want to use their slave population to give them political leverage via representation in the new government. Like, it's just ridiculous. Completely ridiculous. Where's, like, during this convention, where's James Madison at on some of this stuff? Because I'm going to dig into, like, some of his propaganda. But before we do that, Mm -hmm. I want Nick to fill in on, like, what, what, what mindset and what the impact is during the conventional process. I mean, I could focus more on the three-fifths compromise, but we're actually going to come back to that when Mm -hmm. we dig back more into uh, the subaltern history of this era. I want to take a minute just to read a couple of brief quotes from, actually from the convention itself and the proceedings, because I think that, like Jared's been talking about, we have this myth that somehow this meeting and the crafting of this document was like, it granted power to the people and it implemented democracy in the United States. And like Jared said, we cannot stress enough how much that is a myth and how much we have been indoctrinated as the American public to believe that. But very, very, it becomes very clear very quickly when you actually read some of the notes from the proceedings of this meeting that that is absolutely not what they were after. So I'm going to read the opening statement of the convention that were given by Edward Randolph, who was the governor of Virginia. So this is uh, the first day of the convention, which was actually May 25th. It was originally planned for the 14th, but because of, like Jared said, the difficulties of traveling during this time period, uh, basically people hadn't shown up yet by the 14th. So uh, it actually started on the 25th. So this is what Edward Randolph had to say to open the convention. He says, quote, Our chief danger arises from the democratic parts of our constitutions. It is a maxim which I hold incontrovertible, that the powers of government exercised by the people swallows up the other branches. None of the constitutions have provided sufficient checks against the democracy. The feeble Senate of Virginia is a phantom. Maryland has a more powerful Senate, but the late distractions in that state have discovered that it is not powerful enough. The check established in the Constitution of New York and Massachusetts is yet a stronger barrier against democracy, but they all seem insufficient, end quote. He straight up opens the convention talking about how we can create a new government that will protect against democracy because the state constitutions are now not powerful enough. I'm going to read just uh, this sentence one more time. Our chief danger arises from the democratic parts of our constitutions. Literally, the first sentence, the opening statement of the Constitutional Convention is saying that the biggest thing we have to work out is the fact that our state constitutions are too democratic, that the majority of the people have too much power, and we need to prevent that from happening. That's the opening of this convention. So if there's no way that you can digest this or dissect this in any other way to try to somehow rationalize in your brain that they really wanted democracy, but their hands were tied or like all of these. It's absolute nonsense. There is no excusing what these men were after. They were wanting to craft a document that prevented the people from having power. That's exactly what they wanted. Then later on in the debate, I'm just going to read one quote from James Madison, though there is so much from him. Uh, We'll get to it. Yeah, Yeah. There's more. The reason there's a lot from him is because the secretary of the convention Basically, his notes were super briefed and some of them super brief and some of them were actually destroyed. But Madison was taking lengthy notes the entire time. So basically, his personal notes from the convention are the main documents that are left over from how the debates were going. So this is a quote from James Madison. He says, quote, an increase of population will of necessity increase the proportion of those who will labor under all the hardships of life and secretly sigh for a more equal distribution of its blessings. 
These may in time outnumber those who are placed above the feelings of indigence. According to the equal laws of suffrage, the power will slide into the hands of the former. No agrarian attempts have yet been made in this country, but symptoms of a leveling spirit, as we have understood, have sufficiently appeared in a certain quarters to give notice of the future danger. How is this danger to be guarded against on Republican principles? How is the danger in all cases of interested coalitions to oppress the minority to be guarded against? End quote. He is straight up saying that as the population increases, the majority of the population will be poor. And if we have a pure democracy, then those that are poor would be able to use their democratic power and vote in policies that would more equally spread the wealth uh, among the population. And he's saying that's exactly what we have to protect against. We have to protect against the majority from having any kind of political power. Like I said, there's no mincing words here or trying to some somehow manipulate his words to be meaning something else. They're in there, in this convention, trying to structure a federal government that strips the power from the people. And I do not think that we can stress that enough. Oh, we're not done with Madison because, like, a couple of quotes isn't enough. There is numerous evidence stating, and again, this is the primary crafter of the United States Constitution. Not the only, but the primary. Arguing why democracy is not something that they want. Just to stress why Madison was so important. Jared already said it, but I don't want to gloss over it. And it's actually interesting, you didn't give these details, but like I said, everyone's travel was, it was complicated at the time. And so when people start showing up for the convention, Madison is actually the first one there. And the other Virginia delegates are all the first ones there. And so they all work together on the Virginia mm-hmm. plan before everyone else shows up. Just so like they, the group project that you are yeah. working on back in college or something. <laughs> like, you know, the first people to start working are just the ones. And then the ones that kind of roll in, you know, the next day or the day, day after are just basically playing catch up the whole time. So like Jared said, the Virginia yeah. plan isn't exactly adopted, but it is like 90% of it is adopted. And it's the one that they all build the Constitution off of. So that's why Madison is so influential. Yeah, it's... Whew. All right, let's let's move forward. Not everybody was on board. Like based on what we just discussed, not everybody was on board for that. They saw the writing on the wall that this is a way to generate just a new version of tyranny, arguably a more institutionalized form of tyranny. Even as Thomas Paine said, if like something sucks in a constitutional monarchy, you know where to look. Whereas in this, this complex system here with the Virginia plan and so on and so forth, like you're going to be looking everywhere for a problem. And that makes it that more entrenched if you can't find like what head to cut off of the snake, right? That's one of the things that he was arguing against. But I think that was part of the problem. See, the idea behind this was to make it so complex and so convoluted and so difficult to navigate that change, if it ever happened, would be wildly just so slow. Because again, these are the architects of the country. They're already at the top of the proverbial stratification or hierarchy. They're at the top of the pyramid, right? And they don't want things to change. They don't want to distribute power evenly. They don't want those things. It's good to be king, quote unquote. They want it to stay that way. They want to conserve their status. They are conserving their status. They are conservative. They want things to stay the same. And so it's they're just going to funny make that, it, like, yeah, go ahead. Like we talked about Sam Adams and his hypocrisy. All of them are like that, right? They're like, in one instance, they're fighting for revolution to bring down the tyranny. And literally, like, it's basically almost the next day they're fighting to keep everything exactly the same. So nothing ever changes. 
Well, and in in this spirit, as the as these debates get a little bit more heated and everyone takes off for a little bit before they're about meant to reconvene, during this time period, James Madison and his elitist friends get together and decide they are going to create one of the most famous propaganda campaigns in United States history. Uh, and when I say Madison and friends, the two most prominent would be Alexander Hamilton and John Jay. There's a handful of these articles that were written that I'm about to talk about that are unauthored or people don't want to give credit to one of those three guys, but most of it is these three guys. Madison Madison, Hamilton, and John Jay. We're talking, of course, of the Federalist Papers. These are 85 articles written by all of these men under the pseudonym Publius, and they appeared in publications like the Independent Journal, the New York Packet, and the Daily Advertiser between October of 1787 and April of 1788. And, uh, and, and again, if you're like, again, a poor yeoman farmer out in the sticks of Georgia, you're not reading those. This is, this is aimed at a specific audience and it's meant to spread the propaganda of why the country should adopt this new federal entity and adopt the constitution and ratify it. I mean, basically the audience are the other delegates of the convention that they're relying on to approve the or elites that yeah. other elites that aren't meeting but have, have the ear yeah, yeah have the ear of these these representatives to give you an example right here in federalist number one the very first one of these the series of articles here's a quote it said as it has been frequently remarked that it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country by their conduct and example to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. What's this first Federalist saying? Seize the day. Take your destiny into your own hands. Like, I mean, it's just... It's all rhetoric. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just straight-up rhetoric. To go further into this, and I think most of our, our listeners probably know, they're a ridiculously educated bunch, so sometimes I feel like we're, we're, we're preaching to the choir. But regardless, our listeners know the most federal famous one is Federalist Number 10. And we do know that was James Madison's baby. And to echo what Nick has already said from quotes that had took place at the convention, I want to dig more deeply into Madison's Federalist Number 10, a couple of the uh, chief quotes that kind of show the Federalist cause, the, the cause of the Constitution was not democracy. It was not representation of all of the people. It wasn't any of those things. It was maintaining the wealth, status, and political influence of a small faction of people. He has this to say, the valuable improvements made by American constitutions on the popular models both ancient and modern, there, of course, he gives credit to other inspirations, cannot certainly be too much admired, but it would be an unwarrantable partiality to contend that they have as effectually obviated the danger on this side as was wished and expected. Complaints are everywhere heard from our most considerate and virtuous citizens, equally the friends of public and private faith and public and personal liberty, that our governments are too unstable, that the public goods good is disregarded in the conflicts of rival parties, and that measures are too often decided not according to the rules of justice and the rights of the minor party, but by the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority. What is he complaining about? He's complaining about democracy. That's what he's... Exactly. He wants to protect this minority faction. From the majority. From the majority, which is the way a democracy works. But we don't live in a democracy. Mm -hmm. And we never have... I don't want to say we never will, but we, we don't now, and we haven't. There are two methods of cursing 
uh, of curing, cursing, of curing the mischiefs of faction, the one by removing its causes, the other by controlling its effects. So basically he wants to get rid of this like factionalization or control factions, but right, he wants to, you could either cure the mischief or you can tr- control the effects. So you the, can prevent factions from happening, or you can make some kind of political apparatus that will completely eliminate them having any power. That's what he chooses. He doesn't want to, like, he doesn't want to fix the problems that have created the factions. Again, racial inequity, gender inequity, socioeconomic inequity. He doesn't want to fix any of that. That cannot be fixed, but we can control the effects of our problematic systems in place. Does that sound like the United States of today to anyone? Yeah. We won't fix the system. We'll merely place little band-aids on little things Mm -hmm. or restrict the power of those people that are feeling oppressed of making changes. You want to make change? Show up in November and vote. That's the only way you'll ever make change in your life. Vote for another rich white guy. Readdress the symptoms. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, he says the inference to which we are bought in is that the causes of faction can't be removed and that relief is only to be sought in the means of controlling its effect. So he's basically saying we shouldn't even try. It's just tradition. It's just the way it's always been. There's always been economic stratification. There's always basically, he's basically saying there's always been haves and have nots. And that's fine based on, I guess, his, his understanding of history. That may be the case. He never bothered to study communities outside of like European communities. So be it. That's fine. But these are the ideologies and belief systems that will cross the Atlantic and merely perpetuated the problematic nature of where they left. They didn't learn anything from the indigenous people that lived here. They didn't learn anything from the sub-Saharan, Af- the sub-Saharan Africans who lived successfully for thousands of years in sub-Saharan Africa before they were stripped from their land and brought here to labor. They didn't learn these different ways of thinking and living and doing. They're like a disease. From this view of the subject, it may be concluded that a pure democracy, by which I mean a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person, can admit of no cure for the mischiefs of faction. He wants no democracy. A republic, by which I mean a government in which the schemes of representation takes place, opens a different prospect and promises the cure for which we seek. The two great points of difference between a democracy and a republic are, first, the delegation of the government in the letter to a small number of citizens elected by the rest. Secondly, the greater number of citizens and greater sphere of country over which the latter may be extended. Basically stating that this small group of people can willingly or will, will willingly represent if they so choose, the popular will of their constituency. What do you think of that? He's basically saying, and again, this is the crafter of the Constitution saying, I didn't, I'm not making a democracy, I'm making a republic. Yep. Uh, yeah, I don't, it's, it's so funny to me that so many people try to interpret Federalist Number 10 in different ways somehow, like it's black and white. I mean, there's no other way of digesting that. That's exactly what he wants. He's very explicitly talking about protecting the wealthy minority from the majority. This might appear in like one of the future episodes where we debate the the way we frame this whole period as 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 is it it change as much as we like to think it does. Um, but I still want your opinion on this. What, why why do we still? I mean, we know this. This is primary source work. Why do we still? How did this word democracy even spread here? Why do we use that word? Even like people that are critiquing society, the Noam Chomsky's of the world still use that word. Why? I mean, we know this, but I mean, how many people do you think have that read Federalist Number Ten? 
Like, no one knows this. This isn't taught in history. That's but even, why. like I said, some of these brilliant guys that we draw inspiration from, the Zins and the Chomskys, they still throw that word around. Like, I don't understand. What do they do? Why? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's ridiculous to me. I think I think one of the... My They're pers- smarter than us, but oh, why, God, are they, like, yeah. why are they... <laughs> my personal opinion is that one of the first steps into making any real change in our country is for people to understand that we do not have a democracy. And I think that that is such a dangerous idea that it's just, it's not even talked about. But like the Chomsky's, I don't know why Chomsky still uses the word democracy as if we have it, but I don't know. Again, that guy's brilliant. Like he's, we've learned some, but that one word, that's my only hang up. Like why does he keep using it? It's like perpetuating the problem. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's about trying to provide people with agency. Maybe there's like yeah. a shrewd tactic there. I don't know. But anyway, back to, back, back to this. Okay, still, even through the propaganda, not everybody's on board with this. There is an anti-federalist movement. They'll eventually become uh, Democratic Republicans. But yes, the anti-federalists saw the writing on the wall. They're much less organized, which is probably why they end up losing, than the federalists. Uh, and maybe that's because they end up showing up late or whatever, like Nick was talking about. The But the anti-federalists by le- are led by men that are not as famous as James Madison or Alexander Hamilton. They're led by guys like Patrick Henry, who I guess is kind of famous still from the, the actual war part and the immediate uh, uh, period before the war. But guys like George Mason, these are the people that are leading the anti-federalist movement. They argue that the Constitution, as it was proposed, which was basically the Virginia plan um, with some minor minor, uh, changes to it, um, proposed that the Constitution, as proposed, threatened a path to political corruption and tyranny. Their specific hate in the Constitution as it was crafted, were that the executive had too much power already. His ability to veto gave him the leg up on the legislative branch. There would never be a full checks and balances because it comes back around to the executive branch. That's the first problem they have, which is sounds awful lot like what Thomas Paine was saying about the separation of powers in the English Constitution. The other thing they hated is that the court system, the federal court system, encroached on local courts. And because of the way we sometimes do things under our legal system, precedents set like, yeah, precedents set legislation oftentimes. And they argue that a federal court system would encroach upon local courts and thus force local courts to adopt federal ideals. Uh, they hated that. They also argued, and this is funny coming from Patrick Henry and George Mason, but I'll give them credit here, even though I picked on Patrick Henry in an earlier episode. He said that this is also set up to where only the elites, elite wealthy people are going to be the ones that are elected. And they're not too bad off, these two gentlemen. But the fact that they were willing to critique this is kind of important. Mm -hmm. And they saw the writing on the wall, right? We don't have, there, there aren't poor people being elected into any of these offices, whether we're talking about the legislative or the executive branches to this day. Yep. Well, I think that it got, like we talked about at so many of our episodes, that the argument that like these people didn't know better and they meant well and like that, that's absolute nonsense. Every step of the way, there's people calling them out on their bullshit. Every yeah. step of the and way. In this case, it's Patrick Henry and George Mason. And then, like I said, it's, it's interesting because, again, I, I picked on Patrick Henry a little bit, mostly for his slave rhetoric during the, the build-up to the war. But that's, that's, a different, that's a different topic. Let's get back to this. Okay. They also argued that, rep, that these representatives could not really know the wants and needs of their constituency. They'll never know them. They don't even have to go meet them. They don't have to go shake their hand and kiss babies. That's not a thing that really happens, at least not at a federal level. 
Yeah, it probably happens at a local level. You can go meet your city council member. You can see him walking downtown to lunch or something and go like, say, what's up? But that's not the way it works at a federal level. And these people are supposed to represent our wants, our needs, our desires, whatever they might be, our right to pursue happiness at a federal level. They don't even know us. They don't know what we want. They're going to be catering to small interests. So the fact that George Mason and Patrick Henry and these other anti-federalists are already seeing the writing on the wall, they predicted 2019. Yeah, 100%. Yep. They also feared that Congress would pass oppressive taxes that could be enforced by a newly created standing army. Did that happen? Holy shit, it did. Yep. Holy shit, it happened. You see, the original the original framers didn't want federal taxation. That's not up to the Fed to do that. It's not up to them. There's not supposed to be an IRS. None of those things are supposed to exist. They knew that. And again... The military might show up at not not show up at your door anymore. It's not the standing army, but yes, there are enforcers, members of an enforcing class. That if you dodge the IRS for as, however long, they're coming to get you. Yeah, we'll actually talk about that in the next episode. Yeah, they're coming to get you, and you're not represented. So you're being taxed without representation. Mm-hmm. At least at that time. Now more people are technically represented. I'm, I'm willing to concede that with suffrage acts and things along those lines. But at that time. Most of the population was not represented. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not women, which is right off the bat. That's half. Half mm-hmm. the population not represented. Yeah. Add in, of course, slaves. Add in people that didn't have property. And yes, it's an extreme minority yep. of people that are represented and they're being taxed. There were many holdouts, but many of the holdouts ended up getting subdued by one important like bridge, one compromise that took place, and that was the introduction of a Bill of Rights. And it's not brand new. Like I said, many of these rights were borrowed from the English Bill of Rights or borrowed from state constitutions that had them. But the Bill of Rights calms tensions a little bit for some of the holdout states. Just enough of them. On June 21st, 1788, New Hampshire caves in and signs on as the ninth state Again, you needed nine for ratification of the Articles of Confederation to basically undo the Articles of Confederation and adopt this new constitution. New Hampshire caved in, and we get Mm. the constitution. So one of the things that we have to talk – I mean we don't even have to go through the constitution. I'm I'm hoping our listeners are aware of it. We're not going to do that. Like that's for them to interpret. I mean – I do want to highlight a couple of quick things just to kind of verify what the anti-federalists saw. The first article deals with the uh, legislative branch, right? That like goes through the legislative branch. One thing that is interesting about this first like version of the constitution is the fact that the bigger house, the upper house, which is the Senate at that time was not directly elected by the people. It was elected by state legislatures, That's one barrier. That's an extra barrier to even removing the popular will of the people. So a federal – now, we have corrected that one. Now you do – we, the people, do elect senators. But at first, that wasn't the case. The reason I'm emphasizing that, though, is because it shows that the framers of the Constitution wanted less democracy. You did not – the upper house, the Senate, you did not get to elect them. It was appointed by the state Senate? Is that right? Yeah, the state legislatures. Yeah. 
which you did get to vote on, but again, you're creating another barrier. Mm-hmm. Like the more layers you create, the more layers of bureaucracy, it's just like playing telephone in, in, in kindergarten, the more whatever your wills, wants, needs, desires are less communicated. Yeah, the more distance the people, the politicians are from the actual people. And it verifies the anti-federalist cause. The second part hasn't changed at all. It talks about, the second article, excuse me, talks about the well, ooh, we will be coming back to this when we talk about the birth of the uh, Federal Reserve. Uh, but no, let's skip through the legislative. That That's a big part. We'll come back to that one, the idea of printing money. But regardless, Article 2 is interesting because it, again, gives the executive power, and it will be, and I quote, vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years and together with the vice president chosen from the same term be elected as follows. Now, there's a minor deviation here that I actually do give them a little credit for. Let's give them a little bit of credit. I like the idea that the second place person at first got to be vice president, and the goal was to, like, diversify the executive branch as far as decision making. Now, that ends up, what, three elections after this, four, three or four, what? Whatever. Do the math for me. Three or four elections after this, that goes away during the Jefferson uh, uh, election. No, I actually have always thought that that was a good idea, too. I, I actually thought that was a good idea. The, the idea was to diversify the executive branch, but it mm-hmm. goes away like real quickly, Yep, real quickly. But what is an awful idea and remains an awful idea, and actually I do think people are catching on to this one. I know there's movement to remove this electoral college. Mm-hmm. That is a huge barrier into direct representation of the people. That right there is one of the least democratic things you can do. That you're all going to vote on who this executive should be, and those votes will then go to the state level where sometimes named or sometimes unnamed people will then decide if you were smart enough in your choice or not, and then give their votes to this person. Mm -hmm. It's just another barrier. At least four times. Excuse me, five times? Is it four or five now? It is five now. It is five now. Five times in United States history, the popular vote winner of the United States lost the executive branch mm-hmm. lost the executive branch hmm interesting yeah i don't know how and people... those times two of those times are actually quite recent as of 2016 and 2000 yep. mm-hmm. for those doing the math at home and uh we'll keep moving anyway um another barrier to democracy in the constitution right off the bat article three the judiciary not elected at all, not even elected. People have zero say so. Who said who names basically the Supreme Court president? And then it is overseen or mm-hmm. decided upon or agreed upon by who? Congress. Yeah. But in both of those cases, because of all the barriers already in place, the people are so far freaking removed from being able to name the judges on the most important court in their country. That can set legal precedents that affect everybody. Yeah, I've always Brown versus that... the Board of Education, Roe versus Wade. It's just, oh my gosh! And those are actually good choices that we would agree with. But those they set precedent. Yeah, I've always thought that the Supreme Court, the judicial branch, was by far the most powerful branch as far as dictating the laws for everyone's daily life. And the fact that they are not elected in any way is just asinine. I mean, I don't know why people aren't more up in arms about that. 
I'm skipping through like articles four and five and just jumping into six because six will focus on the next critique we're going to do as we close out this episode. I like article six because it really drives some things home. It says all debts contracted and engagements entered into before the adoption of this constitution shall be as valid against the United States under this constitution as as, uh, as under the confederation. The constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in uh, pursuance thereof and all treaties made of which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be supreme law of the land and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby and anything in the constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding the senators and representatives before mentioned and the members of the several state legislatures and all executive and judicial offices both of the u.s and of the several states shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this constitution but no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the united states so it closes out with this cute little idea separating church and state and everybody's like pat ourselves on the back we're amazing oh my god we're such an amazing country but the parts before that like we ignore that like basically this is about making sure that your debts and your financial engagement at the very very first particle auto remain valid and that you get to keep your status after this constitution and engage in your debt collection in any way you see fit it also makes sure that all of the states will now abide by the laws of the united states itself so now their individual state rights become subsidiary to what's in this constitution. Now, if it's not in the constitutions, the states can do what they want, which is one of the things that, that the Bill of Rights will also protect. But anything in the constitution, all states now follow whether they like it or not. Yep. Not by choice. Mm-hmm. Not by choice. One of the most – as we close out this episode, I want to kind of give one of the most uh, famous critiques of the uh, Constitution of the United States, and it comes from a famous historian we may or may not have cited in an earlier episode. His name is Charles Beard. And all the way back in 1913, he wrote a uh, book called An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States. And he didn't like it. This is These are some of the things that he had to say. Um, in paraphrasing, to kind of go before I go into some quotes here, he said, The Constitution was motivated primarily by the personal financial interests of the architects. Well, we've already clearly seen that in everything from the Constitution itself to the framing and discussion they were having at the convention or in the Federalist Papers. That's clear as day. It is outlined by the elitism of these Federalists. Now, how did he prove this? Beard, in his book went through all of the records he can find. He researched the jobs or the occupations of these framers. He researched their property holdings of the convention members. He researched uh, what benefit they stood to gain from this new form of legislation. He did all that. I mean, to give you an example, what he came to find is that George Washington himself was the wealthiest landowner in the entire United States at at this time. And that goes back to even the French and Indian War, where his brothers had, were the first investors in the Ohio Valley Company, and they end up starting a whole war with the French and Indians to get that land. Yep. This weird is how, that the leaders of our country started out profiteering from war. It's strange. Weird. This is how he starts this thing off. This is Charles Beard. He says, in fact, the inquiry which follows is based upon the political science of James Madison, the father of the Constitution and later president of the Union he had done so much to create. This political science runs through all of his really serious writings and is formulated in its most precise fashion in the Federalist as follows. So now he is quoting James Madison. This is now James Madison again, who we've already quoted a lot today. Madison says, The diversity in the faculties of men from which the rights of property originate is not less an insuperable obstacle to a uniformity of interests. The protection of these faculties is the first object of government. Right off the bat, we need to protect 
differences in property, not like, not like, you know, social theory or something. In property. From the protection of different and unequal faculties of acquiring property, the possession of different degrees and kinds of property immediately results, and from the influence of these on the sentiments and views of the respective proprietors ensues a division of society into different interests and parties. The most common and durable source of factions has been the various and unequal distribution of property. Those who hold and those who are without property have ever formed distinct interests in society. Those who are creditors and those who are debtors fall under a like discrimination, a landed interest, a manufacturing interest, a mercantile interest, a moneyed interest, with many lesser interests. Grow up of necessity in civilized nations and divide them into different classes, actuated by different sentiments and views. The regulation of these various and interfering interests forms the principal task of modern legislation and involves the spirit and party of faction in the necessary and ordinary operations of government. That was a long and kind of boring quote, I'll admit that, but basically if we're paraphrasing, he's basically saying differences exist based on property, and that property then perpetuates those differences, and it is the government's job to ensure that the interests of the haves maintains authority over the interests of the have-nots. He calls them like debtors. Yeah, he's saying, he's claiming it's the job of government to make sure that the differences in property are maintained. Beard then goes on, we're done quoting Madison now, Beard goes on in his critique uh, in his book, and he goes on to say that it will be admitted without controversy that the Constitution was the creation of a certain number of men, and it was opposed, and it was opposed by a certain number of men. Now, if it were possible to have an economic biography of all those connected with its framing and adoption, perhaps about 160,000 men altogether, the materials for scientific analysis and classification would be available. Such an economic biography would include a list of real and personal property encumbrances, money at interest, slaves, capital invested in shipping and manufacturing, and in state continental securities. The only reason he says this is basically, this is in the beginning of his book, he's basically introducing, well, if only we had this. Oh, I'm about to do this. And he goes on and does this research. He says the point is that the direct impelling motive was the economic advantages which the beneficiaries expected would accrue to themselves first from their action. Further than this, economic interpretation can't go, cannot go. It may be that some larger world process is working through each series of historical events, but ultimate causes lie beyond our horizon. These are his conclusions throughout his work, and they are wildly important. This is what Beard has to say through his entire research, not just the Constitution itself. That's easy. You can read that. But through researching all of the personal records that he can find of these conventional delegates, this is what he finds. He says, The movement for the Constitution of the United States was originated and carried through principally by four groups of personality, personality interests, which had been adversely affected under the Articles of Confederation. These are the four interests. Money, public securities, manufacturers, and trade and shipping. So these are the things that these people are interested in. They're not interested in freedom and liberty and pursuing happiness. They're interested in money, securities, not security, securities, manufacturers, and trade and shipping. He says the first firm steps towards the formation of the Constitution were taken by a small and active group of men immediately interested through their personal possession in the outcome of their labor. No popular vote was taken directly or indirectly on the proposition to call the convention which drafted the Constitution. That's interesting. Uh, a man named Lysander Spooner is also going to say the same thing in a future episode as we dig into him a little bit, but he said that he's right. The Constitution wasn't ratified by the people. It was ratified by this small group of elite men. Uh, 
the large property list mass was under the prevailing suffrage qualifications excluded at the outset from participation through representatives in the work of the framing of the Constitution. Again, most people, if they didn't have property, had no say-so. They didn't even get to say who the people were there representing them. The members of the Philadelphia Convention, which drafted the Constitution, were, with a few exceptions, immediately directly and personally interested in one and derived economic advantage from the establishment of the new system. The Constitution was essentially an economic document based upon as recognizing the claim of property to a special and defensive position in the Constitution, that it is the right of those that have to defend their shit from those that don't have it and profit off their labor. Based on, again, my rant about the three-fifths compromise would be a great example. In the ratification of the Constitution, about three-fourths of the adult male failed to vote on the question, having abstained from the election at which delegates to the state conventions were chosen, either on account of their indifference or their disenfranchisement by property qualifications. So even among white dudes, who were the most celebrated in the world at that time in the United States, only three-fourths of them were even involved in the voting processes. Not democracy. The Constitution was ratified by a vote of probably not more than one-sixth of all adult males. In the ratification, it became manifest that the line of cleavage for and against the Constitution was between substantial personality interests on the one hand and the small farming and debtor interests on the other. The Constitution was not created by the whole people, as the jurists have said, neither was it created by the states as southern nullifiers long contend. But it was the work of a consolidated group whose interests knew no state boundaries and were truly national in scope. What do you think of Charles Beard's critiques? It's pretty hard to uh, discount that critique. I mean, he, yeah, I mean, it's the, the super, super small minority of men that created this document that has given direction to this country since that time. And so, I mean, I th part of the reason we harp on this point of history so much is because the myth is so impactful, but also because it just, it's so crucial for us to understand that if you actually want to make change in this country, you have to understand that from the get-go, it was designed to prevent that change from happening. It was designed to prevent people from having any kind of real power. So you're up against, you know, you're up against the Constitution itself and the interests of the elite. To, to provide one of the easiest examples that, that I'm assuming most of our listeners are familiar with, I mean, just think about civil rights. How long did that take? Civil rights legislation was introduced, well, shoot, we could argue it was introduced when Thomas Paine said, hey, guys, stop having slaves. Or when Abigail Adams said, hey, guys, stop having slaves. We could actually argue that. But even from a legal process, it was first introduced right after the war, Civil War. It is not completely passed until 1964, 65, whatever year it is. Somebody can Google it. I think they passed it in 64 and it went into effect in 65. Regardless, that's a hundred years. Mm -hmm. Almost half the country's existence, we're deciding, we're deciding if these human beings should have the same rights as other human beings. And the funny thing is, even after the passage of civil rights, one would be completely remiss to argue that rampant, systematic, and institutionalized racism is still not alive and well. It is. It is. Women's suffrage is another great example of how long it went from when it was first introduced legally at the federal level until it was finally adopted. I mean, it's just asinine. Anyway, I mean, 
this episode's getting a little bit long in the tooth, and we want to kind of like get ready to, to 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 move us past the constitutional era and into how this actually begins to work, which is usually wildly eye-opening for a lot of people. Uh, the first presidency and so on and so forth, much more complex than what we're usually usually taught. Much like the uh, every series or every episode in this podcast, but we do we want to emphasize this point as the creation of the non-democracy. You don't live in one. We don't live in one. They didn't make one. What are we going to do about it? Closing thoughts, Nick? No, I think that's good. Uh, We'll obviously pick this up in future episodes. In fact, the very next episode will be a uh, about, oh, I don't know how long later, almost a century later, a good critique of this constitution and this period in time. Um, Yeah, so that does it. That wraps up this episode. You can find us online, revolutionandideology.com. Uh, do us a favor and go on wherever you're listening to this and give us a rating. If you're watching it on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe to our channel. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. You can find us on Facebook. Just search Revolution and Ideology Podcast. Yeah, that does it. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.